back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you dig our empathic explorations into working lives, please share studs with your people. And better yet, if you really support the mission of studs and you enjoy the program, I got a way for you to show your support. Just head over to patreon.com backslash studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I got some goodies for you if you got some support for me. You can get some cool stuff for just a couple bucks. I'll appreciate any support you can give. This episode of Studs features me in conversation with Jason Teplitz. Jason is a cybersecurity expert. He discusses how there's a war happening right now, right under our noses, and how he and his team are hell-bent on winning it. He talks about hiring and empowering what he calls his killers. You'll find that this cyber warrior passionately deploys the language of war. At the same time, he speaks with kindness and concern for cyber war as a civic virtue, making hospitals, schools, and elections safe. Jason makes us safer. So join me as I take a deep dive with this cyber warrior. Jason Teplitz, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for joining me. You were recommended by a guest we had on season two, Ryan Gellert, our mutual friend. He's really interested in what you do. I'm really interested in what you do. You're a sales engineer at CrowdStrike. How do you describe what you do? That bastard. <laughs> no, I, I certainly love Ryan, and it's great to talk to you today, Dan. Thank you for choosing me. As I grew up in the cybersecurity industry, there's a variety of positions that you can hold at cybersecurity organizations, from people that like analyze threats to writing software to interfacing with the clients directly to you know make sure that they understand what you're trying to sell, what it does. But it's up to guys like me or my team members nowadays to actually sell the technical components of the solution and make the customer understand why the product is going to do what it says it's going to do, how it's going to do it, and, and making sure it's, it gets installed and works based on what we described. It's really easy at CrowdStrike as we have one of the best products in EDR, that's enterprise detection and response on the planet. So and I'm really lucky to work for a great organization. But the gist of it is sales engineers make the technical side of the sale happen. So as I understand it, in that capacity, you investigate, report, and prevent security breaches. Like, what does that work look like on a day-to-day basis? Sure, sure. Well, our clients can either operationalize their platform themselves, meaning that as security events happen, as somebody 
launches a piece of ransomware on their computer and it starts to encrypt or hopefully it's prevented by our solution or whether somebody actually clicks on a link that creates a back channel for an attacker to come inbound and take control of your computer. Those are all going to translate into security events in a dashboard. And, And the most important thing about cybersecurity nowadays is speed and how fast that you can respond to a security incident. So You know, at CrowdStrike, we have this thing called 11060. We want to make sure within one minute of you having a security event, it's published to your dashboard. Within 10 minutes, you can investigate it. And within 60 minutes, you can remediate or contain that incident. So as an operator of our platform that is that is actually um, operationalizing it themselves, they're going to be getting these inbound security incidents from a variety of of communication mechanisms, they will use our dashboard to investigate those incidents and start the remediation or containment directly from our dashboard. Obviously, you have to have a great deal of expertise in cybersecurity to understand what you're looking at. On top of that, folks will operationalize what we call threat hunting on our platform. That means that as new attacks are seen in the wild that aren't necessarily detected by our platform, you can go search for telemetry across all of your endpoint hosts, artifacts, hashes of files, execution information that allow you to understand, did that hit you already? Or do I have maybe you know, a true adversary hands-on keyboard in my network? So threat hunting is a huge component of what CrowdStrike allows an enterprise to do because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we collect all the telemetry related to execution on an endpoint. So every time you open up your browser, every time you you launch any application, we're recording that information. And when we see behaviors that are look to be malicious, that's where our, our analysis and our detection and prevention technologies come into play. Of course, nowadays, many organizations don't have the expertise to do this work. It's really hard to employ a cybersecurity expert for a long period of time. They, they're generally, they're getting jobs for a couple of years and then somebody's offering them a better job and they're moving on. So that, that's why managed services have become such a great option, meaning that um, an enterprise managing their solution themselves and, and trying to protect themselves 24 by 7, answering all those detections that probably happen in the middle of the night or when they're at their kid's soccer game or something. We do all that for you at CrowdStrike. So it's a huge piece that allows for companies to be protected 24 hours a day, seven days a week when we actually operationalize um, cybersecurity for an organization. Super interesting. I'm, I want to kind of come back at some point to this metaphor of hunting because I'm kind of curious if it if it feels like you're out there like as a hunter and having that kind of rush. But before I get ahead of myself, I get the sense that your work is like <laughs> like some kind of like a twisted menagerie of management really sophisticated technical stuff that like like nine people understand and you're two of them, right? And then sales. And I want to talk about each of those in turn. And if we can, I'd like to start with engineering because I think that's where you started, right? You began your career as an engineer. You were, I gather, wildly successful uh, I checked your LinkedIn profile and your background photo has a bunch of zeros and ones. 
This might be a bit of an abstract question, but can you describe your relationship to zeros and ones? My whole life has been dedicated to, you know, the art uh, of technology. I've been lucky enough to work for several of the um, most important cybersecurity manufacturers in the world, from mobile device security to browser-based security and firewalling, and now what we call incident response, endpoint detection and response. The best technologists in the world generally have a career like mine, where they they started out in a role maybe in support. Myself, I don't know if you know this about me, Dan, I really wanted to be a lawyer when I graduated college. And I worked for a law firm, and I realized that my personality, I'm not a great politicker. I'm not great at that, that whole process of, of kissing butt and trying to get promoted or become partner. It's just... I just knew it was going to be a problem for me. And I, I didn't want to get paper cups all day long doing document discovery for years. <laughs> so I, uh, I gave up on that. And I, like many technologists, I rolled up my sleeves and I went to the basics and I started at a very low level job. And um, my, I, I want to say my intellect and technical capacity moved me along through that very quickly to the point where um, in the early days of the internet, I was hired by one of the uh, initial cybersecurity consultancies that was later bought by a large organization. And I actually ran their IT organization for several years and um, then was recruited by an Israeli firewall company called Checkpoint. You know, you really need to have that breadth of experience before you move into that sales engineering role. Because if you don't have those basic technical troubleshooting capacities or scripting capacities, you're going to get into a situation during the sales process where you're, you're not going to be the smartest person in the room. Somebody's going to make you feel like a chump and you're, you're, you might lose the sale. That is a proven mechanism of success is starting in a hands-on engineering role and then moving into a sales engineering role if you have the personality for that. And sales engineers are, are very unique people. I interview lots of candidates and I'm looking for extremely high energy, outgoing people. And this generally isn't the case with you know cybersecurity engineers. So it, it's a real needle in a haystack to find that that really great engineer that's going to be able to be a, an influencer and a trusted advisor and, and, and sell our state-of-the-art solution. Huh. I want to try to get into your process for hiring people and the types of characteristics that you look for. But I also want to kind of put my thumb into this pin and get some more uh, insight from you about engineering. I, I want to know how you deploy logic <laughs> and how you deal with the language or the languages that you use to engineer these systems that that seek to basically like detect and prevent other perfectly logical attackers like your logic has to be better than their logic you have to work every day to ensure somehow that your logic wins like, what does that work look like? What do you do? Well, I already talked to you about the collection of the telemetry. 24 hours a day, we are collecting hundreds of millions of execution events across the globe. And we have 
engineers and analysts that are looking at our graph database that's what we that that's what this this tool is that all of these endpoints report into it's basically a supercomputer it's thousands of nodes with millions of endpoints connecting to it pumping data into it and and the logic and, and on the back end is what allows us to understand behavioral security events and malicious execution so behavioral security events might be something like this program um, whatever, Microsoft Word suddenly starts entering data at the command line. I don't know if you've ever seen a Windows command line. Yeah, yeah. You can get to it by typing cmd.exe and a black window comes up and it says Windows on it. Well, when you actually see an endpoint with a execution behavior like that, something unexpected, it will be flagged by our software. And either the flag will be very strong and will be very positive that this is a malicious activity and will prevent it immediately. If the logic only allows for a weak identification or a weak detection, that's when that becomes a hunting lead for our Overwatch team, that uh, a human group of analysts that basically looks at all hunting leads produced by all of our clients and will help identify if there's actually a human attacker on keyboard. So 100%, we, we depend on this large-scale cloud graph database with thousands of computers to, to fish out the, the, the hunting leads or to fish out the, the detections and preventions. But many of those are so weak that if, if we were to actually prevent them in real time, we would cause downtime in computer networks. So as opposed to preventing them in real time, that's when the lead is sent over to one of our human analysts. They look at your specific telemetry and they decide, hey, this is a security event. And if it's managed by our teams, and that's that's when we're also going to act on that to contain a host or, or start a remediation process. Does that make sense? It makes sense in the broader sketch of the cat and mouse game as you're describing it. Mm -hmm. What's a little less clear to me is what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, like what you, Jason Teplitz, do ah, on a day-to-day -day okay. basis to interface with that that cat and mouse game, that hunting play for sure, that for you're sure. that you're talking about. So what what is it that you do? So this is a podcast about work. It's a podcast about what you, Jason, do. So what do you do? Okay. Well, when I was an engineer, initially with checkpoint software working on firewalls, my day-to-day -day life often was um, helping customers evaluate whether the firewalls that they were installing would have all the necessary performance to support their web applications, whether that was a major pharmacy or uh, another type of organization that accepted um, massive amounts of web traffic, or whether I was working with organizations to enable virtual private networking, which is VPN that allows you to securely communicate with your office networks from home. All of that was, it was very hands-on working on engineering problems related to network switching and routing and, and security at its most basic. 
And, and that was very interesting. It was very fun. I worked on the speeds and feeds and I, I was, I literally was in the middle of the night dozens of times working with clients to, on, on huge problems because their phone systems were down or their medical record systems were down or they're in the middle of an upgrade and, and something failed. That was a really interesting time in my life, but it was very stressful because it was a 24 by 7 type of job that I, I not wasn't just selling, but I was the go-to technology person for a critical infrastructure component. Um, that was uh, it, it put a lot of a lot of gray hairs on my, in my my life, and I really enjoyed it. And I want to say it was the uh, what gave me the troubleshooting capacity that uh, it really made me an awesome engineer is uh, working on, on the biggest networks in the world and the biggest firewall infrastructures in the world and chasing down that needle in the haystack. My job is is a lot different nowadays, and there was a lot of progression from where that was to here. There, there was more um, working for companies that had basic applications where it was more of the same. It was mobile phones, and I was securing mobile phone systems and, and making sure people understood how to deploy that as, as an engineer. But nowadays, my job is a, a lot different in that um, CrowdStrike it works, again, in that incident response and um, services field as well as enterprise detection and response. And these are the tools that organizations use to reverse engineer a breach, meaning that, you know, user clicks on a link, next thing they know, an attacker is back channeled into their endpoint. You know, that is what CrowdStrike is core competency is, is finding those behaviors. You know, from day to day as a, an engineer at CrowdStrike, you could be literally dealing with a, an, an issue related to something not working as expected or a major school district or a major hospital gets ransomware and they need help reversing this situation. They need to understand where their failure was. So if they were not a client, there's a whole, you know, they need to get onboarded and my team of guys will be right there, you know, on keyboard with the end users, getting the product deployed, making sure that if hosts are infected, locking them down, then our services teams engage and, and, and do remediation and, and, and more. Your day could be an escalation event. It could be a, an event where you're helping somebody that has an emergency, like an incident response via a breach or, or ransomware. Or they could be doing that basic sales component where a, a new prospect is interested in, in CrowdStrike. And they literally, during their demos, will, of course, show our dashboards. But as cybersecurity experts, they will show actual hacking techniques and how our software records those techniques. The team that works for me are, I have um, X three-letter agency uh, employees that used to be given money in, in paper bags and parking lots to go and hack at foreign organizations. Truly, there are a couple guys on, on our team that, that are those type of spooky people expert lock pickers. You know, I don't know if you know that lock picking and hacking go hand in hand. I mean, I have my, my, my folks are, are truly a highly diverse group of engineers with high levels of expertise in cybersecurity, either as a professional pen tester, an ex-government employee, you know, terrific skill sets. Honestly, they, they couldn't get a job with us unless they have the best skill set in the industry. To be able to do that orchestrated attack demonstration takes a, a high level of knowledge and uh, 
technical expertise. So this is, I'm desperately afraid, sort of a sideways question, but I, I, I'm meditating on your language and you're talking about like engaged and deployed and escalated emergency and locking. It's like, there's like this militaristic almost language about it. Like it sounds like there's a war going on out there. 100% there is a war going on. And CrowdStrike is on a mission to, to, to stop that war, to stop the breach. You know, we are absolutely a force to be reckoned with when you're an adversary. And we call them adversaries. And we 100% use defense and military-related concepts in, in many of the things that we do. Just like I was saying earlier, the team of analysts that watch all of the of the weak telemetry or weak detections, they're called Overwatch. Overwatch is the team that watches uh, seals on the ground. They're the, the snipers that sit on the roofs and watch the seals on the ground. If, if you're familiar with the, um, the Democratic National Committee's breach. Right, right, I recall. That was CrowdStrike that named the adversary Fancy Bear. We have adversaries and, and different types of animals that represent different types of attackers and different geographical attackers, you might say. So bears are obviously Russian in, in this case. Yes, there's a whole nomenclature of intelligence that goes along with everything we do. Do you work alongside people who you deem to be aggressive? Because when I think about the belligerent nature of the language. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny is uh, a lot of our analysts nowadays are, are millennials and I all the time get flamed in emojis that I just don't understand. I'm like, just talk to me, just type something. At me. <laughs> so like, uh, you have to understand these folks are really busy. You know, there's literally millions of security events going on across the 10 million plus endpoints we manage. And these analysts they're looking at data all day long. I mean, it's it's a tough job. Uh, so if you file a ticket wrong or you ask the wrong question of one of these folks, they will definitely get you. <laughs> They'll definitely have to gotta watch your questions. Everybody's very smart. They expect you to read the manual and uh, go to your resources before you're interfacing. But it, of course, uh, it's one team, one fight. And uh, it all sounds like so wrapped up in bravado. Am I getting this wrong? Bravado? Bravado? I mean, cybersecurity is a massive, massive problem. You know, like literally right now during COVID, attackers are attacking hospitals. The FBI recently released a, a notification that adversaries were targeting hospitals across the country. The day after they released that, we had several clients report on breaches in progress. So this is a, a real problem and it takes not, not bravado, it takes expertise and people and process and technology. I, I mean, bravado, you know, nowadays, you know, the mission is the most important thing. So let's dig into the mission a little bit, right? The mission is to stop breaches. And to do that, you all have a host of products that protect hospitals and, and governments and local elections, like really what you're doing is a public service. And I'm really curious about the extent to which and the ways in which you're motivated by civic virtue. Uh, you know, I, I 
love to help people. It is ingrained in my soul. It is definitely a big piece of what's made me successful as a technologist and a sales engineer and now a manager. Anybody working on my team probably came from a job either in the government, the public sector, or healthcare. Everybody that works on my team, you know, they are 100% dedicated to the civic aspects, again, of election security, of, of making sure all of the organizations in the states that we that we secure are, are, are rock solid. And so there is a lot. I mean, my, my, my guys are highly dedicated to this, to the craft as well as the customer. And they, they work on, on my team because they want to work with healthcare organizations and state and local governments. There's certainly bigger, more profitable things than state and local governments. These are resource constrained places. So um, SEs that work in this, in this, specific vertical set are, are generally highly dedicated to the to those types of uh, organizations. Honestly, like the enterprises pay quite a bit more than the state and local governments, and it's really hard to keep talent at these state and local governments. But there are definitely altruistic people out there as engineers that are, are, are dedicated to protecting healthcare and state and local governments. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I want to dive into one little side of that. I'm not sure that my listeners or I know exactly why it is that uh, nefarious parties have interest in breaking into the, 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 the hospital's web of information. What's the, what's the payload for them? The motivations can be to steal data and hold it for ransom. The motivations can be to, to use ransomware to encrypt everything on the network and demand payment. We believe that adversaries worldwide are taking advantage of the situations in American hospitals and, and, and putting undue pressure on the computer networks in those hospitals and, and undue pressure on the, the people that maintain those, those, those hospitals. Yeah, in general, it's all about money. We don't think adversaries are attacking hospitals to kill people. But certainly that concept is a major concern. My customers are very concerned about the computers in their, in their respirators and their IV machines and what we call the internet of things. So there is definitely concern out there. You know, there's been very few uh, recorded accounts of physical hacking against Internet of Things type of hospital mechanisms, but it has happened. Protecting patients is 100% part of this, this thing. Again, there's the actual ransoming of the computer networks themselves, meaning that making everything inoperable until people pay a fine. And, but I, I'll say this to you. Not every group is a, uh, a crime or mafia type group of cybersecurity experts. There are often nation state governments that are trying to fund themselves by, you know, illicit hacking. There's certainly been reports of certain nation states attacking and demanding ransomware payments. And we believe that that money is being used to finance terror or other types of nefarious activities. What are the governments in the world, in your experience, that are most guilty of seeking to hack hospitals and local governments and schools and the like? Uh, China, Russia, North Korea, 100%. Can I ask the degree to which 
mere disruption seeking to create anxiety is a motivating force? That certainly could be part of it. I mean, obviously, the, the GRU, which is the Russian National Security Agency, loves to sow discord in U.S. elections. I imagine there probably is some component of this that they're trying to sow discord amongst the United States you know, hospital system during this, this COVID disaster that we're dealing with. So um, we'll write our 2020 breach report later this year, Dan, and maybe we could do a follow-up interview and we can review that. So you had alluded to this earlier, and I'm hoping I can pick up on it. You mentioned that a lot of people at hospitals and educational institutions, they have a hard time retaining some of the most talented people because of the budget constraints. Yep. And while they are able to keep on some, you know, good-hearted people, uh, many of whom are wicked clever, eventually the Benjamins speak and oftentimes, though not all the time, the most talented people walk. And then in comes the people from CrowdStrike, a whole bunch of, I assume, remarkably well-paid people in their real nice cars with their real nice clothing. They show up in the parking lot 20 minutes before a meeting. They've been strategizing for a long time, and they walk into a hospital or uh, an educational institution, and they're bringing not just guns to a knife fight. They're bringing atomic weapons to a knife fight. I'm, I'm wondering what the meetings look like because you are able to hire the most eminently qualified people. Everybody there is the smartest guy in any other room. Is that how it kind of happens? And what does that look like? You're generally meeting with a cybersecurity team, what we call a security operations center team or an incident response team. And these folks might have come out of the military. In the Western United States, it's very common for cybersecurity experts to be ex-Air Force or ex-military. So you get into these meetings and, you know, it's it's a fine line between um, talking to a customer and, and, and challenging them to see their gaps and challenging them to do better. And certainly... Um, that can work um, negatively. I've certainly had a, a really bad experience just recently where my confidence at a, a major university um, derailed an opportunity for a short period of time. Um, I went in there and I challenged the customer and they got really turned off by it. I had a lot of regret and I had a lot of self, uh, self-analysis. And in the end, uh, we decided that this was all just planned from the get-go. They were using some Sun Tzu-style techniques to influence the sale. <laughs> but you're right. We, we, are, we definitely come in armed to the T. You know, if a customer doesn't want to work with us, we probably don't want to work with them. And the meetings generally go um, with a conversation in the beginning about goals and, and programs. And then they move into live demos where we're showing our dashboards or we're doing a live attack so they can see the speed of the platform or we're coming in and we're teaching people to to hunt their data that hunting concept i talked about earlier is is a, a huge thing that we will we will do with our customers to enable them to again secure themselves that's just part of the game 
In these meetings where you are seeking to sell your product or some of your products to a public institution or a private institution for that matter, is part of that process you showing how easily you can breach what they have and how you can then sell them something that will prevent people like you, people who have your skills and your team's skills from breaching the products that they've been investing in? Yeah, for sure. We call them red team, blue team exercises where our team attacks a client's computers, a a specific set of computers, and then that team at the organization will respond with our product to that attack and learn how to to do this in like a live fire type of incident. Or they have situations where they either had a breach and they know they need an incident response firm to come in and find all the artifacts of that breach and make sure, you know, figure out what data was exfiltrated uh, so that you can go to your board of directors and, and say, this is what happened and this is what we did to remediate the issue. So I'm really interested in the language of we that you deploy. And I know that as you've advanced in your career, you've learned a lot about team building. Mm-hmm. I imagine that you lead a <laughs> a pretty stealth team. I'm curious, what kind of people do you hire? I'm really looking for that super high technical capability, including troubleshooting. During your interview process, we are going to evaluate your troubleshooting skills, your technical skills, your, your ability to demo attacks. On top of that, I'm looking for passion. I'm looking for people that um, that don't need direction, that they're going to go and just be killers. I call my guys killers. I, I don't cage the animals. I don't cage the killers. I need the killers to go out and be killers. My leadership is, is definitely player coach style, lead from the back, but 100% hands-on keyboard, helping my my engineers through tough situations, being there and making sure that they they get the vacations they need and, and, and filling in for them where I, I have to. I don't carry a lot of structure on my team. I, I don't m- monitor whether people attend internal meetings. I just, I, I make sure that they're great at their job and uh, they're great to our customers. So Jason, I operate with a certain level of intensity. I fancy myself focused. Sometimes I lament the degree to which I fear I'm hyper-focused. It has a certain strain on certain relationships that I have. But what I'm interested in here is you have these people to whom you refer as killers, and you expect them to be laser-focused and to be almost animalistic in their focus. But what they're doing is they're staring at screens. And it's like this really mentally aggressive thing, right? Yeah, for 100%. You have to use all the skills, all of your energy. and But it's so physically immobile. Yeah, there's not a lot, you know, you're sitting in front of a computer, all my guys have stand-up desks, and again, like, I am I really encourage my team to, to go and be active with their families, get exercise, a lot of focus is making sure people are, 
mentally happy and healthy because it's tough times right now. That makes me happy. I know we're all trying to pursue an active so-called work-life balance, and it's good to know that there are team leaders out there like you who care about the whole person, the whole killer, if you will. And I'd imagine that that creates for a satisfying day when people have that kind of balance. Can you tell me what a satisfying day as a sales engineering manager looks like? Like, what does it look like when it's all humming? I might be on a call with one of my my team members that pulls a flawless live attack demo. A great day is having that live demo at a new prospect go flawlessly. A great day is, and when you get to go and do that engineering thing and really help somebody and make them, you know, enable them to leave work or, or shut down at a normal time and not have to be at their computer all night long worrying about something, that's a great day. You seem not only passionate about your work, but you seem to really love it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure. My first experience with computers, my, where it all became really visceral, was um, I don't know if you remember when the first uh, CD writers were, were out on the market. And I, I bought myself a computer and I wanted to make myself CDs of mixed music. Yeah. Next thing you know, I, I had built this computer and I have a CD drive and I'm making all these these CDs to play in my car. And it was this terrifically visceral feeling of, of I took something from nothing and I, I extended it. And it's like, a, I guess I like puzzles because like a lot of this stuff is, is again, finding the needle in the haystack, solving the puzzle. Every year there's new problems that I, I can't foresee and I'm constantly learning. Do you have concerns about aging out yeah, that's why I'm a manager now. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I definitely have concerns about aging out. Um, maybe I age out of security, but that doesn't mean I can't go work in... in Walmart uh, as a greeter? Yeah, no, 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 in a headset, <laughs> like uh, other types of technology companies. Like uh, I had a friend that works for a company that develops a head headgear that has like computers built into it. I think that's really cool. Like I could see myself, you know, building out headsets that doctors wear in surgeries to be able to share what they're seeing across the world in real time. I think that's really cool. But aging out for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, in cybersecurity, there's so much expertise out there right now. I'd be a fool to not let these folks that have gone through these programs rise up and, and give what they have to offer. They're, they're, they're just going to make the industry better and, and computing more secure. Yeah. Jason, I love the image you drew of you as a teen uh, making mixed CDs. Um, And we here at Studs love stories. Can you tell the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure? And if you would be so kind, start with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph. Sure, sure. Well, my failure, I already mentioned, uh, I, uh, a large uh, prospect of ours, I went in there and uh, I, I talked to my, my team about challenging customers, especially under the competitive nature of the market right now. Um, there's a time and a place for everything. 
And uh, the failure I had was, I think I was just too passionate and I was too confident. I should have focused on partnership more and technology less. Lesson learned. If that makes Lesson sense. Lesson learned. It makes perfect sense. And can you temper that with a story of Jason Teplitz smashing success? I can. Two years ago, I was on my way home from sales kickoff where I'd been for three or four days, drinking heavily, working with my coworkers, having a lot of fun, but getting myself exhausted. As I got off the, the plane, I got a phone call from a security professional at the state of and um, the state of had a massive cybersecurity event that happened. The next thing you know, I'm, I'm invited to this security event. And this is a room of 80 plus people, people in military uniform with a National Guard colonel running the whole show and a national security agency team member there also helping to direct. I had uh, all of my biggest competitors in the same room. Everybody's trying to get their products fully deployed and working. Two things happened that week. For one, I was in a room with this national security agency member, people from the National Guard and the FBI, and they went around to all these vendors and they're like, vendor one, how many sensors do you have deployed? And they throw out a number in the thousands, a couple thousand. The next one, how many sensors do you have deployed? A couple thousand. Get to me. How many sensors do you have deployed? 36,000. This national security agency member and this colonel look at me like, who the heck are you? Yeah. I, I went there with a mission and I got all the people I needed to do what I needed them to do. So the next thing you know, I have given them the visibility they need to stop this breach. And they're just kind of dumbfounded. I am also at the same time asking my leadership to, to send a gratis, a free of charge incident response team to the state to help contain the incident. During that whole process, after these 36,000 sensors were deployed, the National Security Agency and the National Guard members asked anybody that was working on any of their solutions to, if they saw anything strange, do an audible, raise your hand, call out so that the leadership teams can come over and evaluate it. So I am on my dashboard. I am looking at the telemetry of their 36,000 hosts. Suddenly a big alarm goes off right in our software. And I call an audible and they all come over there and uh, they're looking at this and it's 100% a uh, PowerShell based attack that was run. I immediately start asking everybody in the room, approximately 80 people, did anybody do this? And sure enough, one of the national guardsmen that was there ran a command, a PowerShell command that we feel is malicious and we caught it in near real time. Like as soon as he ran it, I, I called the audible. And again, the faces of these people in them were like, holy shit, does this stuff work? And it was just this awesome experience. Yeah. The, the governor of the state of sent me a, a thank you. That's awesome. I feel very fortunate. But again, I, I really think it has to do with putting yourself out there. You know, if, if somebody has a problem, run through that wall to help them if you can. Triumphant indeed. I got goosebumps at a little part of that story. 
Thank you for joining me on Studs. It has been a genuine joy to connect with you, to learn about your work, to learn about your triumphs and failures, and to learn really also about the language of the work that you do. I found myself on the edge of my seat. It's the language and the passion with which you deploy it that I find endlessly curious, frankly, but also just more broadly speaking, interesting. And and it gives me great joy to learn that you still take so much joy in it. I appreciate that, Dan. That's heartening. Thanks for being on the podcast, Jason. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, sorry for the bleeps there at the end. Turns out that uh, Jason and I stumbled over some confidential stuff crazy story though, right? Jason Teplitz is a good man. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. So subscribe, leave a review. If you dig what you hear, tell a friend or two, and if studs mean something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please, please consider supporting me. Head over to patreon.com backslash studs. I'll catch you next time. Please take care of yourselves. Crazy times, y'all. Crazy times.